This is The Lid Is On, the flagship news podcast from the United Nations. I'm Connor Lennon. On today's show, we're going to focus on cutting-edge technology, the UN's role in making sure we get the most out of it and avoid destroying humanity, or at least causing catastrophic harm by misusing it. In the last few weeks alone, we've had a UN expert group meeting in Geneva to work out how to make autonomous cars safer. We've seen a UNESCO forum in Slovenia to bring about international regulations on the use of artificial intelligence. And at our HQ here in New York, several days of negotiations to try to hash out a cybercrime treaty. But let's start with robot cars. The other day I was watching the Julia Roberts Netflix movie at the end of the world. Uh, You may have seen it. There's a great scene, which is not in the book, where hundreds of hacked Teslas crash into each other on a freeway slip road. The context basically is that the US has been hacked. Now, this seems to tap into our fears about cybercrime and technology in general. And the mood definitely seems to have changed in the last few years. I mean, I remember speaking to excited engineers in the 2010s thereabouts, and they were looking forward to a a very orderly world of electric robot cars just around the corner, eliminating accidents and, and congestion. But it turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. And like personal jetpacks, hoverboards, future always seems to be just a few more years away. But that's not to say it won't happen. And the UN has been at the heart of discussions involving countries and the transport industry to develop international regulations and guidelines governing automated driving. Now, earlier this year, the UN Economic Commission on Europe held the first working party of the year on this topic in Geneva. Francois Guichard is there now. He's the lead UN official on so-called intelligent transport systems and automated driving. Hello, Francois. Hello. With a lovely backdrop, I can see of all of the uh, all of the flags of the Palais de Nations in Geneva in, I guess, sunnier times than there are right now. Now, Francois, a long time ago, you worked in the car industry, and I was talking about those kind of discussions between engineers on these great future we'd have about automated cars. Did you did you hear those discussions back in the day? Yes. So the technical progress is such that. Uh, when I was working for automotive, we were dealing with some safety systems which were close to automation already, but it had nothing to do with uh, driverless vehicles at that time. Right. But now uh, we have seen lots of progress, as you say, but it, it seems to be taking a long time compared to the, the hype. Uh, so where are we in terms of the reality of seeing a world full of automated cars on the roads? Yeah, you're, you're right. There was a real hype some years ago, almost a decade ago. People were announcing uh, driverless cars within four years. And we always found it, you know, like very courageous to announce that. We, we know that this is very complex. Back in 2014, we started to work on automation. In 2015, our executive secretary called on for cooperation in policy brief, policy discussions and also op-eds. We called everyone to join us and to make it happen. Um, And we have today now uh, everything in place in order to have discussions among authorities, vehicle manufacturers, and we are developing the rules for these vehicles. And why is it so complicated? There is an issue with the technical progress. We would like to have driverless vehicles. It's so hard, actually, because human drivers are able to do so complex things when they are driving. But also they fail. And you know that we have a drama, road safety. We have almost 1.2, 1.3 million fatalities per year, road safety. So 
you know, driving is difficult. And when it's about technology, engaging with humans is very complex. But some people would say that human beings make more mistakes than than machines would. But do you think there's an issue that we're more accepting of humans making mistakes than we would of, you know, if, if an automated car um, ha that something goes wrong and someone is injured or killed, it seems like we're much less tolerant of that. Because as you say, road safety is a real issue. Human drivers are making mistakes every day. Uh, you know, it's difficult for me and as, as an engineer to talk about acceptance. Uh, what we try to do is really to create uh, an environment and conditions with uh, you know, safety at first. Uh, we are trying to have technical requirements. We are trying to show demonstrate the performance of automated technologies and uh, we, we hope that we will do better than humans and uh, you know of course we have some kind of risk assessment in the background but you know what we try to do as engineers is really to define the technical requirements for these vehicles now your working party brings together experts it brings together countries uh, where are we now in terms of that that regulation how far away do you think we really are from seeing many more smart cars on the road so the industry came up with six levels of automation. Level zero, which is zero automation, and then there is one, two, three, four, five. And what we have today on the streets in many countries are level two technologies, which are basically driver assistance systems. So it means that the driver remains in control and the driver really, you know, operate with the assistance, but is driving. Level three, four and five will be with the automated driving system driving the vehicle and performing what we call the DDT, the driving task. But we have today on the streets, on motorways, some level three technologies driving in traffic jam on motorways. So this is where we are today. And what do you think? Do you think that we will see a future where cars are mostly auto autonomous? Yeah, so this is a step-by-step you know, -step progress. We started with zero automation. We had advanced cruise control systems in cars a decade ago. And now we have vehicles capable of more and more interactions with the roads. Um, we have systems that are able to sense the road to, to understand where the vehicles are on the street, etc. So we are able to deliver some form of assistance. And you know, the next step will be some more, the next step will be some vehicles which are able to drive completely under limited circumstances. And uh, we, we really see this happening. Uh, we are now engaging in the development of a global technical regulation for automated driving system. This is something that we expect to start in 2024. And we do that for a reason. The industry is claiming that they are ready for this. So, and we really hope that is going to happen because we have so many challenges in transport to tackle. We have the road safety crisis. We have also the impact on the environment. We have uh, global warming uh, mitigation that we have to, to support with the technology. And next week, actually, at the Inland Transport Committee, we will probably adopt the strategy for climate change mitigation related to transport. So there is really a need and the technology is going to assist for that. And what about the fear of of hacking that I mentioned earlier? That you know, the, the fact that people could potentially get into your car and control it uh, when you're inside and endanger your safety. Is this something that people are worried about um, within the working party? And what's being done to try and assuage those fears? 
Yeah, this is something that is very serious. I don't know if the risk that we have with cybersecurity correspond to what we see in movies. It might be different. But vehicles are connected. Uh, in Europe, for example, vehicles have to have a connectivity for ecosystems, for example. So there is a risk with every new vehicles, basically. And that's the reason why uh, the working party for which I work initiated activities on cybersecurity and also adopted a technical regulation for cybersecurity. This was back in 2020, and some countries are mandating this regulation. So the industry is getting ready. The regulation is not telling that you have to use some magic in order to protect against any kind of cyber attack, but the regulation is there to make sure that all processes are in place and that in case of an issue, then we have the means in order to react to this issue. And are there any technological breakthroughs coming down the line that we should get ready for in the next six months to a year or so? So we just adopted a regulation, a technical regulation for ADA systems. So what you have, for example, in the USA with Tesla, um, you know, there will be some means in order to assess the technology. And for those countries applying type approval, there will be the possibility for third party testing to happen and also to provide approvals for these technologies. So this is a breakthrough. It means that we will have more and more assistance technologies on the market. And as I said, also, we are now developing the technical regulation for automated driving systems for this level three, four and five in Fine. And, you know, this is going to happen. That was Francois Guichard, a UN expert on autonomous cars, on the UN convened working party on the regulation of autonomous vehicles. Now let's turn to artificial intelligence. After what seems years of fevered speculation about the possibilities of AI, recent technological breakthroughs are starting to bring some science fiction ideas closer to reality. Last year, it seems we were all talking about the amazing things that ChatGPT could do. Huge numbers were trying it out, including me. And then people were starting to worry about the ways this powerful tool could be misused. On the plus side, it seemed the world was starting to wake up and make a concerted effort to bring some order to AI regulation and get to grips with some of the unethical behaviour that's already starting to ring alarm bells. In 2023, we saw some really interesting national and regional developments, notably at the European Union level, and the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, convened an AI advisory body, a group of 38 of the world's foremost human intelligence on the subject, tasked with coming up with recommendations for the international governance of AI. And those reports will build on the work of UNESCO. That's the UN Education, Science and Culture Agency, which developed its recommendations on the ethics of artificial intelligence in 2021. Uh, those recommendations, by the way, were unanimously adopted by the agency's member states. And earlier this month in Slovenia, UNESCO held its big annual global forum on AI, at which the main players take stock of the progress made in putting those recommendations into practice. Irakli Kodeli is the head of the AI Ethics Unit at UNESCO, and he joins us from Paris. Hello, Irakli. Hello, glad to be with you. Now, very briefly, Irakli, just give us an overview of, of those recommendations back in 2021. Just give us the summary of that. Very often we encounter these discussions even today that we need to come up with a global framework of principles. It's important to note that that already exists, and it came uh, about after quite intensive negotiations uh, amongst the member states of UNESCO, 193 uh, member states then, 
now 194 with the United States um, back um, as a member of the of, of UNESCO, uh, and 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 this framework still uh, stands today uh, to provide guidance to the policymakers about what to do, how to govern this rapidly uh, evolving uh, technology. Well, you mentioned the national applications, and as you said, we're delighted to have with us here Isaac Nacheveri, Minister of Science and Technology in Chile, who is. Uh, who is in Chile right now. And first of all, let's talk about what AI means to you in Chile. What do you see as being the main applications and, and how it can benefit the people of your country? Well, thank you so much for the invitation and, 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 and for the opportunity to share this space um, with such amazing experts. Um, like I, it actually was mentioning, we were uh, one of the first countries to not only adopt uh, the recommendation, but also to implement with the readiness assessment model, which is the methodology that allows countries to identify where they have opportunities, where they have um, enough advances, and where they need to put more efforts to um, just have everything you need to be able to ensure that AI is being used and is being used in an ethical and responsible perspective. So we have many, many cases, right? We have at least 100 examples of the use of AI in government in Chile. Uh, there's one that I really like, um, we have an agency that is in charge to providing um, social benefits to um, those in need, basically. And they generated a model that allows them to predict those people that are most likely not going to uh, ask for those benefits, right? You need to go to your municipality or to an agency that is right around the corner, but for some reason you don't get the information or it's likely that you're not going to go and ask for that benefit. And they're able to predict who those people are, to identify them uh, geographically, and to have not a not an artificial intelligence, but a person knock at the door and say, "Sir, Mrs., you have a benefit here. You could uh, you could have access to it. It will improve your quality of life. So please do so." Uh, so it's, I think it's a beautiful example of how we have technology that uh, enhances the public sector and makes it better without removing the human interaction that we think is so important. And I'm going to head now to a rainy Seattle <clears throat> to speak to Mary Snap, the Vice President of Strategic AI Initiatives. Uh, thanks for being with us. I think it's quite early there in Seattle, so we appreciate you being with us today, Mary. Uh, so it's funny that many people from your industry are worrying that AI tools are beginning to make these certain conceptual leaps and reach conclusions in ways that, that they don't understand. And I'm sure that when you're at dinner parties and you tell people what you do, you you get these kind of questions as well. So, I mean, first of all, are, are you concerned as someone who's in the industry? Well, I guess what I would say is, as others have said, AI just holds such great promise. But like anything, technology can be used as a tool to enhance human experience, or it can be used as a weapon. And that's been true since the beginning of technology, since the printing press, actually, if you think about that. So this technology, while it is just stunning, it is no different in the, in the, in the opportunity to really enhance the human experience, but also to add a little bit of a weapon to bad actors. So it's very important for us as an industry to use our own technological um, 
uh, abilities as well as contractual abilities with each other and with our customers, as well as interfacing and collaborating with government to really ensure that there are safety breaks in certain cases, that we know what computers can do and what technology can do and what we should say that they should not do, and that we also very, very actively seek to identify, to detect, to measure and to mitigate what could be some negative effects of this technology. And frankly, just as there were negative effects of social media where perhaps we together collaboratively didn't address the issues that we could have and maybe should have earlier on, this is an opportunity to really work together early on to attempt to mitigate what could be some more negative effects while still recognizing the tremendous promise of the technology. And finally, to the big issue of cybercrime in general, whether or not it's supercharged by new AI tools. Cybercrime is a huge business worth trillions to criminals who buy drugs and weapons on the dark web. You've got fraudsters stealing personal data and terrorists recruiting new fighters. Well, it's such a big problem, it needs an international solution. And around five years ago, the General Assembly at the UN resolved to set up a committee of experts and representatives from all regions to put together a convention to counter the use of information and communication technologies for criminal purposes. It's not been easy. You need to balance security concerns with human rights safeguards. Now, uh, earlier in February 2024, there were discussions around a draft text. It was a very contentious few days and very hard to, to reach a consensus. So during those negotiations, I spoke to Ramanjit Singh Chima. He's the global policy director at Access Now, an international non-profit advocacy group based in India. Just give me a quick description of what Access Now is and why you're here. We are an international digital rights organization. We seek to advance and extend the digital rights of individuals and vulnerable communities at risk. We also provide digital security assistance to these communities. So we are both monitors, advocates, as well as cybersecurity providers to civil society and the human rights defenders community globally. We are here because we are concerned that this international cybercrime treaty process may end up harming human rights rather than protecting them and actually may make global cybersecurity worse rather than better. Right, so there's this tension, isn't there, between the, the organizations, the countries that want to tighten up security, which I think you'd agree is needed, and this problem about safeguarding human rights. So let's talk a bit more about that tension that's there. I mean, first of all, would you agree that we do need an international solution to cybercrime? I think we need more solutions for cybercrime. The question that many people has is, have is whether a UN treaty would help advance this. But we recognize that many states, particularly in the majority world, what sometimes people refer to as the global south, do want guidance on cybercrime laws from the UN. So we recognize that and that's why we're here. But we do think that you can actually tighten up cybersecurity while not undermining human rights. And in fact, this treaty sometimes makes cybersecurity worse. So, for example, security researchers, the people who patch, discover vulnerabilities in our devices every day, the current treaty text would actually make their work harder, not easier. And in an odd way, this cybercrime treaty may end up making cybersecurity worse off. Are you worried that in countries which are not so democratic, more authoritarian, this kind of legislation 
could really make things worse for the citizens of that country. Absolutely, and that's not speculative. That's already something we see today in authoritarian countries in the world, but even challenged democracies. We see often cybercrime laws used to persecute and harass journalists, activists. It's sometimes even used to harass security researchers and those who work on cybersecurity. When they discover vulnerabilities in government systems or in other systems that people would not like to talk about, or perhaps where they challenge the powerful, instead of being rewarded or thanked for their work, they're persecuted instead. And that's critical, and that's a crucial reason why the UN today must make the situation better, not worse. There's a great danger that this cybercrime treaty, if it's not fixed or not improved in its standards, may not just uh, uh, legitimize the existing problematic cybercrime laws we see in so many countries, but it actually may help countries draft worse laws, because they're going to look at the UN treaty text, they're going to say you negotiated this in 2024, uh, and if any part of that is not up to, up to par, you'll end up with something that undermines human rights rather than strengthening them. Cybercrime is a huge business. People are buying drugs, they're buying weapons online, fraudsters are targeting people, terrorists are, are using uh, the dark web to recruit fighters and, and misogynistic kind of anti-women, anti uh, uh, anti-minority organizations. This is a big problem. So. Explain to me, you know, what's your positive contribution to improving this situation? Absolutely. I think you, we stand to benefit the most if the cybercrime treaty starts from where we have most agreement and clear consensus. And therefore, we said that this treaty actually, while there are many problems on the internet, needs to address the initial focus of it, which is core cybercrime, namely those crimes that are possible only through a computer, what sometimes people call cyber-dependent crime, hacking into computer systems, undermining the security of our networks. Start with that, clearly indicate that those should be criminalized by states, and put in place clear provisions by which governments across the world can cooperate with each other. Ironically, if you make the scope of the treaty too broad to cover all these crimes, someone's, for example, crime about targeting a community might end up actually being a political crime, where someone says, if you comment about a head of government or a head of state, that should be something that's penalized under the cybercrime law. So we think start with the narrowest, clearest focus. And when it comes to law enforcement actors, police actors, cooperating under this treaty across borders, put in place strong human rights standards, because that provides trust and, in a sense, confidence in the process. And that means when, say, country A sends a request to country B, country B will cooperate because they believe the request has gone through a judge, has gone through a proper process, it does not undermine human rights, it's not a political matter, and they will then cooperate. But if you make it a very broad treaty with no safeguards, ironically, every request for cooperation shall be challenged by governments themselves, or if not, by human rights advocates and by impacted communities. We're speaking in UN headquarters, just a few steps away from conference room three. You've been here, I think, all week. What the tone is like in the room? I think the room, the mood in the room for a large part of these last two weeks has been a bit grim. But you can now see a little bit of comfort coming in because as of this morning, it's been indicated that the process is not going to finish by today, which is obvious to everybody. But finally, the official uh, chair of the process and, and the, the bureau of the, behind the treaty negotiations has circulated a resolution indicating that the process will be suspended and they're requesting the Secretary General for support to carry forward negotiations later this year. The, the negotiations are supposed to complete by this General Assembly by the high-level week. It's still a lot of pressure on the process. So let's see where it goes. In fact, our biggest fear sometimes is that there's too much agreement in the room on certain provisions. Because of the accelerated pace of these negotiations, there's a desire to come to some sort of agreement, even if the language is not good, even if it harms human rights. And sometimes, as is natural, when you put 
Ministry of Justice officials, prosecutors in the room, they all tend to agree because they all want as many powers as they can with as few safeguards. And of course, in every country, they have their own domestic safeguards or conversation, but they don't want to bind themselves to stronger safeguards. And that's why we've been alarmed. And that's why we're in the room, because we actually are not worried about the con contestation and the politics, which is significant. But we worry that there may be too much agreement sometimes to undermine human rights and lower due process standards. Well, will we see a treaty at some point? this year? I think we suspect, rather our view is that there probably will be a treaty, whether this year or later, it's going to, there's going to be some instrument coming out because many states do want some framework in the UN. I think the question is if you see a treaty coming out, will states sign it? And I think that's the $100 million question. When many states whose cooperation on matters of investigating tech companies or handing over data sign it, that's you know open. Many states who oppose the creation of this treaty process, remember, it is a contested vote. Most criminal law treaties in the UN tend to be accepted by consensus and then negotiated by consensus. This was on by a simple majority in a resolution proposed by the Russian Federation, opposed by many states. But then the compromise was they said it shall be adopted by consensus. But I think that states want to see some sort of outcome, or at least not be seen as spiking the process or harming it. But if the final uh, product is not good enough, they may not sign it. And in fact, that's something that many of us said this week. So there's a joint statement put out by civil society, industry and technical experts that said the current text of this treaty is not fit for purpose. States should not sign it or should not even tell the ad hoc committee to accept an outcome report if they're going ahead with this current version of the text. Also, huge amounts of work to do from what you're saying. And I do hope we are able to check in with you a little later down the line. Ideally, when we get a bit, little bit nearer to something that's acceptable to all parties. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. And if you enjoyed listening to this show, you might also enjoy watching it. Yes, whether you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or our own UN News app, you can now watch this show in glorious Technicolor. Well, colour in any case. We would love to know what you think about the show. And if you have any suggestions, please drop us a line. Lid is on at UN.org.